The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Luke chapter number two is where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, before we read that, I want to ask a quick question. How many of you have ever gotten yourself into trouble while you were bored? Anybody? Maybe you were younger, you were bored, you were restless, and you did some things in your boredom that you later regretted. Well, my brother and I, uh, throughout our high school years, we worked all summer long at a summer camp, and every week it was the same thing, the same work every week, week in and week out, and it was, it was difficult work. I mean, oftentimes we'd be up at 5 a.m., work until 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, uh, busting our tails all week long, and then the week would end, and then there'd be another week of campers, and it was kind of monotonous, kind of routine. Sometimes it was kind of boring, but it was also hard. It was a lot of hard work, and it was exhausting at sometimes, and there was times where we were just like, oh, this, this is the worst decision we've ever made. Why are we spending our summer this way? I can remember one time, about three-quarters of the way through the summer, uh, my friend and my brother, we were just worn out. We were tired from the monotony of it all. Uh, we had spent all Saturday morning getting the campground cleaned, ready for the next group of campers. And that Saturday night, we had some free time. And so we were restless, we were bored, we were tired. And that was a dangerous combination for us three. So what we decided we were going to do is we were going to go raid the game closet, steal the water balloon launcher, and then terrorize all our fellow camp staff. They were all hanging out on the basketball court, playing basketball, hanging out, having a good time. So we went, we got the water balloon launcher, we filled up all these buckets of water balloons, and then we stationed them strategically around the basketball court so we could see them, but they couldn't see us type of deal. And then we proceeded for the rest of the evening to terrorize our fellow camp staff. And I can remember one time we got that water balloon launcher. Now this is a big water balloon launcher, right? It's taken all three of us to launch it. Uh, we got it. We launched this thing. We launched this water balloon beautifully. It was flying through the air. We thought this is going to land right in the middle of the basketball court, scare everybody. This is going to be perfect. But then as we saw it to our horror, we realized that wasn't what was going to happen. And it hit my friend's girlfriend right in her lap as she was sitting there on the bleachers. And of course, we were all, oh my goodness, we're going to die. She was upset. Her boyfriend instantly began chasing us down throughout the woods. We're running through the woods and we all split. And as I'm running, I trip over a horseshoe stake and I take a huge chunk out of my leg. I still have a dip in my leg in that spot to this day, but I'm lying there in the woods in the fetal position, holding my leg, doing everything I can not to scream. Because I know if he hears me, the pain I will experience will be worse than a pain I am feeling now. Uh, to, needless to say, our boredom got us into some trouble that night. That, the difficulty and the monotony of that suburb led us to making a bad decision. Uh, the truth is, though, life often has seasons that are tiring, seasons that are difficult. Maybe you're uh, doing some post-grad work and it feels like all you're doing is studying and you're studying and you're taking tests and you feel like you don't have any life anymore because you're just consumed with books and you're consumed with studying. Maybe you're an entrepreneur and you feel like, man, it's just every week, it's 80 to 90 weeks just to get this business up off the ground, just to get it going. And I feel like this job is starting to consume my life. You wonder, when is it ever going to get better? When can I take a paycheck? You know, when can I work a normal work week? Maybe you're here, you have uh, little kids in your home, and you're a parent, and you've got little kids. That's an exhausting season. You feel like all it is is diapers and routines and temper tantrums. And your friends without kids are like, hey, let's go out to eat real spontaneously. And you're like, yeah, that ain't going to happen. You've never seen my kids in a restaurant, and you just have no more social life anymore. Uh, maybe you're here, and you're a couple, and you want to have kids, but you can't. And you're going through that difficult season, and you often wonder, God, what are you doing? Why, 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 why can't we have kids? God, what, what, what's going on? Maybe you're a parent and you have teenagers and you just feel like you're going through a season. It's just hard with your teenagers. 
and you're up late at night praying and you're worrying, you want so badly to get through to their heart and you're just fearful of their future. Maybe it's a marriage that's just going through a really rough patch. And you're like, man, this, is, this wasn't what I was expecting when we said our vows on the wedding day when everything seemed perfect and it's just hard. We go through difficult seasons in our lives. Oftentimes it's why a lot of guys will have a midlife crisis, they'll say, because they're looking at their life and they feel like it's just not going anywhere and they feel like it's just been monotonous and it's not gone the way they thought and so they'll often do something foolish to try to spice things up. You see, we as people, we sometimes we struggle with this idea of prolonged seasons of hardship, and we struggle when we're in the middle of a prolonged season of difficulty, and we, we do everything that we can to avoid them, don't we? We do everything we can to structure our lives in such a way so that it's always comfortable and it's always good, and we always feel like we're accomplishing a lot, but it's not going to be difficult to do. But the truth is, life has difficult seasons. As much as we try to avoid them and structure around them, there are going to be seasons of our life that aren't glamorous. There'll be seasons that are difficult. There'll be seasons that are just plain hard. Now, put yourself in Israel's position. Last week, we saw Israel was in captivity due to their sin. We saw Judah was sunken into idolatry and evil, and they were on the verge of being in captivity themselves. But last week, we saw in Isaiah 9-2 how that they were walking in darkness, but in that darkness, there was a prophecy of hope. The darkness wouldn't be the end. There was a light that was going to come and it was going to shine through and it was going to make all wrongs right. And last week we ended on an amazing high note, this prophecy, this amazing hope we have. And then hundreds and hundreds of years of things not actually getting better but getting worse. In fact, as you study Old Testament history, you'll see things got far worse. And the dark times got far darker. For 700 years, nothing got better. It just got worse and worse. In fact, things got so worse that there was a point where you had the 400 silent years. It's the historical time frame between the Old and the New Testament. It's just 400 silent years because Israel didn't hear anything from heaven. There was no open revelation from God. And if you study that history of Israel in that time period, you'll see that over and over again, they would try to reestablish themselves, but they would fail. They would try to win back their independence, but they would fail. And their history and their story became one of a country that was just being beaten down, taken over by one world power after another. When a new world power would arise, Israel was always caught right in the middle of it, and they'd find themselves under a new pagan regime, a new evil empire, to the point where in Luke 2, you have a people that are tired and they're worn out. The people who, who for hundreds of years have tried to reestablish themselves and has failed over and over. A people who were once world leaders, but not anymore. No longer is the air in Jerusalem filled with the sense and awe and wonder of what God was doing. In fact, it probably would have been filled with more cynicism. I mean, the two leading religious groups cared more about political power than they did actually leading in worship of God. They cared more about scoring points with Rome than they did about leading the people and worshiping the one true God. And then, the long-awaited Messiah finally arrives. Now, most people would have thought his arrival would have been a time of celebration, right? Most would have thought his coming would have come with a lot of fanfare. They would have thought Rome was going to be overthrown. Most would have thought that he was going to completely erase all the evil in this world and he was going to reestablish Israel in that moment as the new world power again. After all, this was the promised Messiah. This was God with us. Surely his coming would be a royal affair. Surely his coming would be so grand and so glorious that even pagan Rome would realize who he was and bow and worship to him. Our human minds make sense. This makes sense to us. I mean, this is God, right? 
pull all the stops, throw parties, spare no expense, have parades, have celebrations. This is God with us. Our hope is arriving. This prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. But that's not how God saw fit to make his entrance. In fact, all the circumstances surrounding the Messiah's entrance into the world screamed just the opposite. They screamed underwhelming. This is how it goes. But as we're going to see throughout our text this morning, and as we're going to learn in our own individual lives, when it seems like nothing is happening, when it feels like heaven is silent, when we don't know what's taking place, when it seems like nothing is happening, God is still working. Let's look in Luke chapter number two this morning. I want to read the first seven verses. We're going to look at all 20 verses this morning, but if you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand. We are in our second week this morning of our uh, series called The Story of Christmas. Each week we're looking at a different part of the grand Christmas story. Last week we looked at the prophecy. This week we're looking at Act 2, which is the birth. Let's read our text, Luke chapter number 2. We're going to read the first seven verses. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them. In the end, let's pray, then we'll jump right into it this morning. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the story of Christmas. We thank you that you came ultimately to reconcile us back to God the Father. I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, and for those of us that are going through those difficult, prolonged, hard seasons, I just ask that you would help us to remember that there is hope and that you are still working and that you are still with us. And because of that, we can experience peace and we can experience joy. We love you. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, these first seven verses, really, they kind of paint a picture for us, and they're giving us our first thought this morning, and that is simply this. We see the underwhelming nature of his entrance, the underwhelming nature of Jesus' entrance. For the gravity of Jesus' person and for the gravity of his mission, he seems to arrive in a really underwhelming way, doesn't he? I mean, think about it. The Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one whose government there would be no end, he was going to be the Prince of Peace, all these amazing things we saw last week. But he arrives as a helpless baby, as an infant that can't even take care of itself. He arrives as a helpless baby. He's born to two people who have no earthly power or status. We know both Mary and Joseph were descendants of King David. So had they been born a couple hundred years earlier, they would have been kings and queens. But in this time frame that they're in, that really means nothing. I mean, David could have, or Joseph could have been a king, but he's a carpenter. So they have no earthly status. They have Uh, really no political power, and this is who this helpless baby is born to. He was born as a baby, delivered in a barn. His first bed was a feeding trough. His first outfit was rags, swaddling cloths. I mean, as Sarah and I, we've looked forward to each of the births of each of our children. There was all kinds of preparation and anticipation. I can remember all the emotions of finding out what we were first expecting. I mean, as, as a guy finding out for the first time that I was going to be a dad, it was this awesome and overwhelming and kind of fearful sense, and it was great, and there's all that excitement. 
and then you're putting the crib together for the first time, which if you've done that as a couple and you're still married, that is amazing. <laughs> that could be a challenge, but there's putting the crib together, then there's finding out if you're going to have a boy or a girl, and you're so excited. Oh, I'm going to have a boy. That's awesome. You know, I'm going to have somebody to pass on the family name, and then you find out you're going to have a girl, and you're scared out of your mind, and you just want to go buy a gun because you're like, this is my baby. You know, there's all those emotions that go along with it. Then you go and you pick out the first outfit, then it's delivery time, and she says, it's ready, I'm ready, and then you're rushing off to the hospital, flying as fast, as safely as you can. Then there's all the doctors and the nurses and all the staff, and there's the whole production of delivery, and then, then there's all the tests afterwards, and then there's that picture salesman who comes in and tries to guilt trip you into paying way too much money for really bad pictures. And then there's all the tests, finding out baby's healthy. Then you get to go home, and you're exhausted, and you haven't slept three days, and few days earlier, you're driving at record speeds, driving home, you're driving at record slow speeds because <laughs> you had this tiny little human in your car. There's all this anticipation, there's all this excitement. For uh, Joseph and Mary, there was none of that. I mean, leading up to Jesus' birth, Mary had just traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's about 90 miles. It's about a three-day's journey. So every day, she's traveling 30 miles on a donkey. How many of you ladies would want to do that right before you're about to give birth? I mean, when you Google ways to kickstart labor, traveling for three days over 90 miles through the wilderness on a donkey does not come up. But that's the situation they found themselves in. Then she had to deliver this precious baby in a barn. I mean, this is by no means the ideal birth for any child, much less the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the, the fulfillment of all our hopes and all of our dreams. Not only did they not have the advantages of our modern technology and science, they didn't even have the advantages of their time. I mean, if any of us were responsible for writing the script on how the Messiah was going to come into the world, none of us would have written it up this way. In fact, Jesus' birth was so over underwhelming, it was so forgettable that later in his life, people thought, people that grew up with Jesus, like, no, you, you, you can't be the Messiah. I mean, if you read Luke 3 and Mark 6, they're like, no, you're Joseph's son. We, we, we know who you are, Jesus. You're, you're Joseph's son. You, you, you can't be the Messiah. His birth was so forgettable that people that knew him all his life were like, there's no way. You're Joseph's son. This does not seem like the fulfillment of the awesome prophecy. But like, we, like we're going to see, even when nothing seems to be happening, God is working. As counterintuitive as it all was, it was necessary that Jesus come and put on flesh and experience human suffering so that we could be made whole again. Uh, the Canadian theologian J.I. Packer said, The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope for pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor. And he was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might die. He might hang on a cross. God became man. He entered our pain, our suffering, and our death in order to defeat death and suffering for all of us. And as Hebrews makes clear, he had to suffer so that we could be made right with God. Hebrews 2.18 says, For since he himself has suffered... When he was tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. So we see the underwhelming nature of his entrance. None of us would have written it up this way. It was so counterintuitive, it doesn't make sense. But I want us to notice what happens in our text next. Let's look at verses 8 through 15. What we're going to see next actually is truly amazing. What we're going to see next, we would think, yeah, that makes sense for the entrance of the Messiah. Let's look at what happens in verse number 8. And they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo... The angel of the Lord came upon them, not snuck up on them, not slowly descended. Boom, the angel's there. He came upon them, 
And then the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So this angel appears out of nowhere. Then all of a sudden, the glory of God is just there. And these shepherds, they're blown away. The Bible says that they were sore afraid. I mean, we're getting a little picture of heaven here. A little picture of heaven on earth. When John saw his revelation of Jesus, he fainted. That's a little bit of what's going on right here, right now. And the Bible says they were so afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddle and clothes, laying in the manger. And suddenly, again, another boom moment. There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will towards men. Now here's something that's not underwhelming. This makes sense. This is a huge announcement. This angel is showing up. Heaven is opening. This angel is giving an announcement. And then this heavenly host appears, and they all start singing glory to God. Throughout the Bible, the word host doesn't just mean a large group of people. Sometimes we see this, and we read this passage, and we think, oh, it's a big group of angels. But if you study out that word host, it actually means army. So in the Old Testament, oftentimes you'll see the phrase, the Lord of hosts. That actually means the Lord of armies. So in our text, when it says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, what Luke is saying here is, this is heaven's armies that are showing up. These are not the pristine little angels with the long white robes and the perfect wings of halo. No, these are warriors. This is heaven's armies. They're all showing up because the Messiah has here. This is reminiscent to last week in Isaiah 9. Remember how that prophecy ended. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So God is saying, in all my might, in all my martial power, I'm going to make this thing happen. And here, all of heaven's armies show up to announce that the Messiah has come. This makes sense. This is the announcement worthy of the coming Messiah. I mean, call the king, call the emperor. We need to get everybody here. This is the biggest angelic event in history. But who are they talking to? The religious leaders? The king, the emperor? No. Talking to shepherds. Which leads us to our next thought this morning. We see the puzzling audience of his announcement. I mean, in biblical times, in the history in which the Bible took place, those historical times, shepherds were nobodies. I mean, oftentimes, shepherding was, was child's work. I mean, when you read the story of how the priest anointed David to be king, the priest shows up to David's house. David's dad, Jesse, he calls in all the sons except David. Because Jesse's like, there's no way, he's a shepherd boy, there's no way he can be king. I mean, shepherding was a child's job. This was not the job you wanted to advance your career. It made no earthly sense to tell these shepherds. Sometimes my wife, she'll, uh, I think every guy's familiar with this, she'll give me the look, right? Y'all familiar with the look? Uh, She'll give me the look and she'll say something like, I'm hungry. And she just lets it hang there. Or like, the trash needs to be taken out. And she just lets it hang there. And I'm like, feeling the look. And I'm like, Okay, and when I'm walking with the Spirit, when I'm being a good husband, loving my wife the way I cry, I'll get up and I'll take out the trash, right? I will get dinner ready. I will do what needs to be done. But there are moments uh, when I'm being a little snarky, and she will say, I'm hungry. You know, give me that look. And I'll be like, what are you telling me for? Which, by the way, is a really dumb idea, right? But you kind of have to wonder, what are these angels telling these shepherds for? They can't do anything about it. I mean, we know they get so excited, they go and they tell everybody, and the people kind of wonder, but nothing ever comes of it. I mean, I can imagine some of these people that were wondering are kind of like, well, 
Uncle Shepherd Bob has kind of lost it again, saying he saw angels. <laughs> it made no earthly sense to tell these people. And I think sometimes we can be so familiar with the Christmas story that we fail to see how counterintuitive it all is. In saving the world, God seems to have gone the most difficult route imaginable, but I'm reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He says, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God is so smart, he is so grand, he knows so much that at our best we look like fools. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So heaven's opening up. These shepherds get to be the audience of the biggest angelic event in history. Now I want you to put yourself in their shoes after they go and see Jesus. I mean, these guys, they're all in like cloud nine. Biggest angelic event, they saw heaven open, they saw the Messiah, they're running around and telling everybody, and then what happens? Nothing. <laughs> they go back to shepherding. They go back to mundane. They go back to routine. They go back to being ruled by pagan Rome, an, emperor, an empire that's the opposite of everything you believe and hold dear. It's back to being downtrodden and oppressed. It's back to being on the bottom of a totem pole in the country that's on the bottom of a totem pole. And I think in some regards, it's easy for us to relate to those shepherds, right? I mean, think about it. We have the best news in the world, don't we? The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the promise of abundant and eternal life. We have beyond what anybody could ever think or imagine. We have all the riches of God in Christ Jesus have made available to us. All the promises in Scripture are made yes in Jesus. We have all these wonderful promises. We have the best news in the world. And yet oftentimes... Doesn't life feel just the opposite? Life is hard. Sometimes life feels like a drudgery. I mean, like the shepherds, we, well, this is amazing. We have God's word. And yet, same old routine, same old difficulties, same old problems, same old bills, same old issue I'm fighting with in my marriage, with my kids, at my job. I mean, you turn on the news and it's the same old political problems. It's the same political scandals. It's another shooting. It's another crime. Another marriage is falling apart. It's another shocking revelation that's going to make waves. And we can look at our own lives, we can look at what's going on, and we wonder, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? I know we have hope. I know we have the best news in the world. I know we have the promise of abundant life, but it doesn't feel like that right here and right now. It feels like everything's opposite. God, it feels like you're nowhere to be seen, and we, we wonder where is God, and we wonder what he's doing, and we wonder what's happening, but we have to remember is even when nothing seems like it's happening, even when things don't seem like they're getting better, but it seems like they're getting worse, God is still working. You see, most people in Israel had no idea that their Messiah was just born. Most of the people in the world had no idea that God was now with them on earth, but the truth is he was. God was with them. The Messiah was there. Hope had been born. The underwhelming circumstances of the nativity didn't subtract, they didn't take away from the glory and the power of Christ's birth. I mean, let's go back and look at what those angels were actually saying. In Luke 2, it says, they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. Throughout the book of Luke, he emphasizes spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. So what Luke is saying here is that I have good news for the whole world. I have joy for the whole world. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Your Messiah is here. They go on to say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill towards men. Even though all the circumstances surrounding his entrance seemed underwhelming, what God is actually doing is incredibly overwhelming. 
And as you reflect this Christmas season on your own life, and as you're looking at your own difficulties, and you're looking at your own struggles, and you're, you're asking yourselves those same questions, and you're, you're kind of in the same position as the shepherds. You have this amazing truth, but you don't know what to do with it, and it seems like nothing in your life is getting better. We need to remember that God is God and that we are not. He doesn't always do things the way we might expect or the way we wish, but when it comes to God, shouldn't we know by now to expect the unexpected? I love Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. It says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration for us. Heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God doesn't operate in a way that we naturally think. And friends, that's good news. Because the way we naturally operate, the way we naturally think, is what got us into this mess to begin with. But God, he came in the most counterintuitive ways. And his ways are so much bigger and so much grander, which leads us to our final thought this morning. We see the glorious result of his coming. Yes, the way he entered this world was underwhelming. It didn't really make sense. Yes, the people that got to witness the biggest angelic event in history, it's kind of puzzling. It makes your head wonder. This is all really counterintuitive. But let's look at the glorious result of his coming. So we have 700 years of darkness, 700 years of being fought over and conquered, 700 years of trying to stand only to be knocked down again. 400 of those years, you don't hear a peep from heaven. And then Jesus comes breaking through heaven bursts wide open and says good news i've got great joy peace for everyone and although we're talking about a moment that happened 2018 years ago we're also talking about a moment that can happen right now all of us have seasons where we feel like we're walking through the darkness all of us have seasons where we feel like life just keeps knocking us down and knocking us down and we try to get up and we get knocked down. We feel like the guy in Proverbs, the just man falls seven times and rises again. We're like, yeah, I keep falling and I keep falling. I'm trying to get up, but I keep falling. There's times where our walk with God, it feels stale. It feels like God is silent. We don't know what's going on and we're confused. We're walking through difficulties. And my friends, Jesus has some good news for you. He says, great joy is available. You can have peace even when your life doesn't seem peaceful. You can have joy even when your life stinks. I love Romans 15, 13. It's not a Christmas passage that we think of, but in every respect it is. Romans 15, 13 says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How many of you want to overflow with hope this morning? Even when life is hard, even when life is difficult, even when it doesn't seem to be going according to plan, Paul says you can have joy and you can have peace. Because of his counterintuitive coming, we get to experience, first of all, authentic joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. There is a level of joy that we as humans can experience that can only be found in Jesus. And there's a level of joy that is so deep and it is so profound it goes beyond what human words can even describe, and it makes everything else pale in comparison, and it can only be found in the person of Jesus. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, we will never know the fullness of the joy that Jesus brings to the soul unless, under the power of the Holy Spirit, we take the Lord to be our master, to be our all in all, and make him the fountain of our delight. God has so much joy available to you that words fail to articulate it. It's joy unspeakable, and full of glory, a joy that makes every other experience on this life seem dull and boring, and it's all in the person of Jesus. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus the fountain? Is he the source, like Spurgeon said, of our joy this morning? When we make Jesus the source of our joy, we get to experience joy that the world can't even hold a candle to. 
but not only do we get to experience authentic joy, we also get to experience lasting peace. God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. Several times throughout the New Testament, he's called the God of peace. Uh, Jesus said, my peace I give to you. That's the type of peace that allowed Jesus to take a nap on a boat that was about to sink in the middle of a storm. I mean, I like the ocean when it's calm and it's tranquil and it's peaceful. You put me on a boat where I can't see land and there's a storm running, I am not taking a nap. But Jesus says, that's how real my peace and that's the type of peace that I give you. Paul said himself, Jesus himself is our peace in Ephesians 2. What this means is, is that the peace of God or the peace of Christ can never be separated from God himself and Christ himself. If we want peace to rule in our lives, God must rule. Christ must rule in our lives. God's purpose is not to give us peace apart from himself. His purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. So the key to peace, the key to joy, is keeping together what the angels kept together. Glory to God and peace to man. Glory to God and peace to man. A heart that is bent on showing the glory of God will know peace. Even when your life is not peaceful, even when your life is not joyful, a heart that says, God, I don't understand. God, I don't know what you're doing. God, I've got a lot of questions. But God, I'm still going to have the hard posture of wanting to glorify you. That's a heart that can know peace that passes understanding. And what holds these two things together, God getting glory and us experiencing peace and us experiencing joy, is believing or trusting the promises of God obtained by Jesus. That's why Romans 15, 13 is so important. It's one of those fundamental texts that points to the crucial element of faith, the crucial role of faith in our lives. It says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe. We're filled with joy, we're filled with peace, we're filled with hope as we believe. As we believe, God, you are good. God, you are in control. God, you know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing, but that's okay. You're God and I am not. So God, I'm gonna humbly and I'm gonna prayerfully under the power of the Holy Spirit just submit my life to you. I'm gonna let you be God. That's a heart. Of belief. That's a heart of faith that will experience peace and will experience joy. God, God promises become real for us and produce peace and joy in believing. So we get to experience authentic joy. We can experience lasting peace, but then lastly, we get to experience eternal redemption. Angel says, good tidings. Some translations say, I bring you good news. The Greek word for good tidings here in verse 10 is euangelizo. I think I said that wrong, but it sounded good, didn't it? It's translated several different ways in our English New Testament. 23 times it's translated as preach. Uh, 22 times it's translated as preach the gospel. So these angels are preaching. Seven times it's translated in some varying way of bringing or showing good tidings, like in our text. So what the angels are doing here is they are actually announcing the gospel. They were sharing the good news that Jesus has come. The most glorious result of Jesus' coming is that we can bring glory to God by being reconciled back to the Father. You see, the story of Christmas is not just a cute little story about a baby being born on a silent night. This is the story of God saying, I'm not going to leave my people in their sin. This is a story of God saying, I'm not going to leave my people in exile. This is a story of Jesus breaking through the darkness, of Jesus breaking through our sin, of Jesus breaking through our exile so that we could experience eternal life and he could establish the kingdom of God. God became a man and he dwelt among us. He lived a perfectly sinless life, a sinless life that the holiness and the law of God demanded, but that we could never 
live. He lived that perfect life for us. And then he died the death that we deserve. We deserve to die. We deserve to be punished for our sin. But Jesus says, no, no. You can punish me, God, instead. And Jesus took our punishment on the cross. The death we rightfully should have died, Jesus stepped in and took our place. And then three days later, he conquered death. He conquered the grave. And he, res- he rose from the dead, restoring us, giving us the opportunity to be restored back to the Father. Jesus came in the most counterintuitive way so we could experience the most counterintuitive gift, salvation. The glorious result of his coming, we can experience authentic joy and lasting peace made possible by our eternal redemption. And all this was accomplished on, as the song says, a silent night. When nothing seemed like it was happening, when no big show, no big parades, Nobody with any, all this happened, what seemed like nothing was going on. Even when life seems to be getting worse, friends, you can experience authentic joy. You can have lasting peace. Even when nothing seems to be happening, remember, God is still working. I read an interview uh, a little while back about a man named uh, Russell Moore. He's the president of the Ethics and uh, Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. And in 2011, he did an interview with a ministry called Family Life Today on the subject of uh, infertility and adoption. There was a season in he and his own wife's life where uh, his wife was, there was some infertility and uh, they weren't able to have any children and then that was followed up by several miscarriages and ultimately he wound up adopting uh, two boys from Russia. So that's why he was doing the interview. He was kind of sharing about his experience and in his interview with Family Life Today, he talks about on his oldest son's adopted birthday, he was waiting uh, for him to get up. And while he was waiting for his son to get up, he, he kind of was wondering, I wonder what was going on in my life when my son was born over in Russia. And so he says he went back through some journals and he went back through some of his old notebooks and calendars and he was able to piece together what he was doing on the morning his son was born. He says, on the morning my son was born, I was walking to a coffee shop like I did every morning. And on my way there, I was praying like I did every morning. And he said in that season, there was a lot of bitterness there was a lot of confusion. He said he really struggled because he was about to turn 30 and wasn't a father yet. And he said, in that moment, I was praying this self-pitying bitterness towards God. And he says, as he was remembering that, the Lord hit him in that moment that while he was praying that prayer, confused, wondering what God was doing, God was answering his prayer on the other side of the world, and he had no idea. You see, even when nothing seems to be happening, God is working. There's going to be seasons of your life when you are confused. There'll be seasons of your life where you're like, God, I do not get this. I'm reminded of what Job said. God, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. But I would really like to go and ask you some questions. (laughs) There'll be seasons that are like that, where you're confused and you're hurt and you feel like your prayers aren't being answered and you'll wonder where God is. I mean, your difficult season of life may turn into a hard life in general. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that everything's going to be peaches and cream for you because you said a prayer. I mean, your difficult season may turn into a difficult life, but my friends, even in that difficulty, we have to remember that God is working. And when we believe that God is working, when we place our faith and trust in him, when we say, God, I don't understand, I don't know what you're doing, I don't know your plan, but God, I trust you. God, I believe. That's a big buzzword around Christmas time, right? Let's redeem it. God, I believe. When we place our faith in him, when we believe in him, that he can make all things right, because one day he will make all things right, 
One day, he says, all things work together for good to them that love God. He's using our story for his glory. Our story may not be the way we scripted it, but we can trust God when we believe, even in those difficulties, we can experience abundant and authentic joy. We can experience true peace. The type of peace that Paul says is past understanding. It's the type of peace that makes the world go, hey, how, how can you keep your cool right now? Nothing in your life is going the way it should. We can experience that kind of peace because God is in control. So here's our takeaway for this morning. Belief in God leads to peace on earth and joy to the world. Even when nothing in your life seems to be going the way that it is, God is working. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.